The time has come, so turn up the sound. It's time for Buried Broadway. Hiya. Hello. I'm Jen Beverelli. And I'm Mikey Beverelli. And welcome to Buried Broadway. Broadway. Where we rediscover, dissect, and demystify forgotten Broadway musicals. That we most likely found on vinyl for a dollar. Oh my god, hi, you guys! We've missed you! Yeah, good to see you all? No. No. (laughs) We don't know what you look like, and quite frankly, I don't really care, because you are beautiful. (laughs) This is not really a visual medium. No, no. But we're back. We promised we'd be back, and here we are, later than we thought, Mm -hmm. because I had to get a little bit of a dental surgery, and um, we just got our stuff back from the smoky cleaners yesterday. And yes, if you've been following, it has taken, what, three months? Four months? Quite a while. Time is weird. But I will say that the episode you are about to listen to was recorded the day before the fire (laughs) when we were all still happy and so innocent and all of our stuff was still around us. Yeah, maybe you'll hear some upstairs neighbor noise, which uh, probably won't happen. Not if I did my job correctly, (laughs) but (laughs) you might. My parents are back from Florida. I think we talked about that. So we will, from now on, be recording in the basement. We'll see how that goes. I I think the basement will work out well because I have already tried out recording in the basement. Oh, yeah, you did. It was very nice. Uh, I actually did a guest uh, spot, I guess you would call it, on uh, Patrick Flynn's original cast. We talk about a musical that's... um, actually unfortunately a little buried right now even though it is contemporary so if you would like to listen to that you can find the original cast that should be coming out i think in october and we'll put a link to the original cast website on our show notes so you can just click on over there check him out and listen to mikey when he comes out in a couple weeks and i will be on there eventually but right now i'm focusing on getting this podcast out for you guys yes I want to get this one out now because we have been planning, because Halloween is one of our favorite times of year, we've been planning to do a show for you guys for Halloween since we started this. So we're doing it. We're making sure to get this episode out so we can get on to Halloween time. Because outside of musicals, we do love the spooky-ooky. We do. (laughs) I'm not sure if this is super spooky-ooky, but... We will be doing a two-part episode because we already know that we are going to talk about this show a lot and research it a lot. So we're making it two parts. Because mm-hmm, no one wants to listen to one three-hour chunk. I, hope I mean, it's not <laughs> we'll see. But yes. if you want to, once both episodes come out, you can do that mm-hmm. on your own time. Mm-hmm. But no one's forcing you to. And after that, we hope. And we are pretty, pretty sure that we'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming now that we have everything in a storage unit and things are a little bit more settled here. Yeah, so look out for some more episodes. It'll be a lot of fun. And if you haven't already, follow us on Instagram because I'm going to get back on the... I was about to say the airwaves, but (laughs) the internet waves, the... I don't even know what they're called. (laughs) Who knows? I'm going to be back on Instagram, (laughs) y'all. I'm going to post some stuff on Instagram. 
And if you want to know more about our show or about fact episodes or anything like that, you can check out our website. If you want to get in touch, just follow this address. It's B-E-V-A-R-E-L-L-I dot com. This episode, we're uncovering Where's Charlie? Based on the play Charlie's Aunt by Brandon Thomas. Book by George Abbott, who also directed. Music and lyrics by Frank Lesser. This is going to be another tricky episode because there is no original Broadway cast recording due to the 1948 musician recording strike that lasted almost the entire year. So because of this, we'll be using the original London cast recording, which was recorded 10 years after the Broadway production. This recording wasn't even released in the United States until 14 years after that in 1972, which is the version we have. We will try our best to give you information on both performances without confusing you a lot and making this episode one million hours long. We bought this album at our local thrift store, Unique Thrift. When we bought this, it was a dollar, and then they started raising the record prices to three dollars, I believe. And now they don't carry records at all. The original London cast opened Where's Charlie? February 20th, 1958, and it ran for 404 performances at the Palace Theater. Where we saw Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. So we know at least two seats in that theater very well, (laughs) considering we were sitting in them for... Eight hours. Oh my gosh. (laughs) The original Broadway production opened on October 11th, 1948, and lasted until September 9th, 1950, for 792 performances at the St. James Theatre. We have seen something rotten there together. I saw hair there. I saw American Idiot there. And I saw the producers, so ha. (laughs) It reopened just four months after it closed on Broadway on January 29th, 1951 for an additional 48 performances, closing again on March 10th, 1951. This was at the Broadway Theater. Where Jen and I saw Fiddler on the Roof and I saw The Color Purple. Okay, you win that one. (laughs) (laughs) On the West End, other shows that were playing in 1958... The first London production of West Side Story, the first London production of My Fair Lady, which is so funny that that started on Broadway and not in London, considering what it's about. Yeah. Uh, And Valmouth, which we really want to learn more about and find the cast recording of. So if anyone has a hot tip on where to get that, (laughs) let us know. And in 1948 on Broadway, High Button Shoes was playing. The original production of Annie Get Your Gun, which was in its third year, and the original production of Kiss Me Kate, which opened two months later. Unfortunately, there are no awards that we can tell you about for the London cast recording because the Olivier Awards did not start until 1976, but we can tell you more about the Tony Awards that it won. Ray Bolger won for actor in a musical. They didn't use the term best because they felt the award was for the year and best seemed like they were inferring they were the best actor of all time. (laughs) (laughs) 
1948 was the third year of the Tony Awards. This was the first year they received a medallion, which is basically only that center spinny circle portion of the Tony Award you know today. <laughs> so it was presented in a box. In the two years prior, the Tony Award winners won a gold money clip or a cigarette lighter for the men. I don't know how they chose between them. <laughs> or a silver compact or a bracelet for the women. Again, no idea how they chose between them. Along with a scroll that I'm sure said, you want a Tony Award, <laughs> as well as this piece of jewelry and or this random trinket thing. No nominations are known, only winners, because nominations were not publicly announced until the 1956 Tony Awards. We can't start learning about this show without first talking about the music writer Frank Lesser. He is most famous for writing the music and lyrics for How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, Guys and Dolls, and The Most Happy Fella. And Green Willow, which we have and we will talk about later. He was born in Manhattan on June 29, 1910, into a Jewish family. His father was a pianist and he moved to the U.S. to avoid Prussian military service. Frank's family tree is a little interesting. His father, Henry, was married to a woman named Bertha, and they had a son. But Bertha died in childbirth, so Henry married his now-deceased wife's younger sister, Julia, and they had a daughter, Grace, and then three years later, Frank. So basically, Frank's brother is also his cousin. Times were weird. <laughs> <laughs> Even though Frank's father was a piano teacher, he refused to teach Frank piano, so he taught himself at a young age. But his father did write to his brother, Arthur, when Frank was just four, to say, quote, He plays any tune he's heard and can spend an enormous time at the piano. Always he wants attention and an audience. Frank's musical taste was unrefined in the eyes of a family who adored classical music. Frank rebelled by playing the harmonica and won third prize at a citywide harmonica contest as a child. <laughs> he attended the City College of New York, but he failed out in 1926 and his father passed away suddenly that July. Frank did not return to school and instead took a series of odd jobs, including restaurant reviewer, process server, classified ad salesman for the Herald Tribune, political cartoonist for the Tuckahoe Record, a sketch writer for the Keith Vaudeville Circuit, knit goods editor for the Women's Wear Daily, press rep for a small movie company, and city editor for the New Rochelle News. Whew. Just a few jobs. <laughs> More than most people's lifetimes. <laughs> he has a long resume. <laughs> He was working these jobs over the course of 10 years while still writing standalone songs and selling them when he could. But he found more success as a lyricist. He helped write two hit songs and the lyrics for a review called The Illustrator's Show, which would be his first Broadway show lasting only four nights in 1936. 1936 was a big year for Frank. He also got married to his first wife, Lynn Garland, a singer he met at a nightclub. Soon after the wedding, they moved to L.A. so Frank could write lyrics for Universal's movie musicals, and then Paramount picked him up. In 1942, he enlisted into the Army Air Force, but he kept writing songs during his time, and even wrote the lyrics to a musical called Hi, Yank! <laughs> 
He left the military in 1944 and promptly moved back to New York City and wrote the music and lyrics for a song that he and his wife sang at their 1944 housewarming party to indicate to guests that it was time to leave. That song was Baby It's Cold Outside, probably the most highly debated Christmas song of all time. (laughs) But despite the modern lens people have forced upon it, the song was initially written with very sweet intentions. Five years later, he sold the song to MGM, and it was included in the movie Neptune's Daughter. His wife was furious. She said, quote, I felt as betrayed as if I caught him in bed with another woman. (laughs) But it did win a 1949 Academy Award for Best Original Song, so she couldn't stay mad at him for long. In 1948, Lesser was approached by producers to write music and lyrics for this show, Charlie's Aunt, which we will get to soon, I promise. However, he received his first Tony Award for Best Musical with Guys and Dolls in 1951. In 1952, he started Music Theater International, now known simply as MTI, a licensing company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this year was the year he wrote one of my favorite songs, Inchworm. For the movie Hans Christian Andersen starring my favorite boy, Danny Kay. You can learn more about him on episode four and hear me giggle a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Now, back to Frank Lesser. He divorced his wife in 1957, a year after he met Joe Sullivan, when she was playing Rosabella in The Most Happy Fella, for which she was nominated for a Tony. Joe would become his second wife in 1959. He won his second Tony Award as well as a Grammy and a Pulitzer Prize for How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying in 1962. He was working on a new show called Senior Discretion himself when he died of cancer in 1969. Arena Stage got permission from his widow to finish the show and it was fully staged in 2004 here in Washington, D.C. But we didn't go and see it because we were ignorant children at the time who didn't go see shows we didn't know the names of. (laughs) And we were probably too poor. True. But now that we've already talked your ear off about the history of Frank Lesser, let's appreciate a little bit of his music. So that was the overture, and it made me feel like I was in a theme park. (laughs) (laughs) It did seem very formal. It seemed very traditional, yeah. Yeah, it. I know this was from the 40s, but it seemed like it was potentially maybe from Operetta or something. Yeah, it just reminds me of the Old Town Saloon area in like king's dominion or something i can see that <laughs> but also you know main street disney 
don't know, all those places that try and put background music that's a little bit epic, so you feel like you're in a movie when you're walking down the street. <laughs> yeah, I see what you're saying. I love uh, it, though. It sets the scene. It does. Let's read from the back cover. By the way of prologue, Charlie, in falsetto, utters the play's celebrated self-introduction and is followed by the male chorus's frantic titular inquiry. There are a lot of descriptive <laughs> words in there, and I am intrigued. And it is the opening number, Where is Charlie? How do you do? I am Charlie's aunt from Brazil. Where the nuts come from? <laughs> Where's Charlie? How's Charlie? Where's Charlie coming home? Where's Charlie? How's Charlie? Why did he ever roam? From I so lovely, where is it? He goes to visit. Hong Kong, to let this never go. Where's Charlie? How's Charlie? When's Charlie coming? When's Charlie coming? When's so many emotions with that song how it's three seconds long (laughs) that's the thing i we might be able to play the entire (laughs) thing for you in fact we played the entire thing (laughs) here's my roller coaster of thought the first line that charlie says as his aunt is so funny brazil where the nuts come from which is from the play. Yeah, Jen. Oh, by the way, Jen knows the play. Not very well. I haven't seen it in a long time. I was a stitcher on a production of the play at Maple's Repertory Theater in Macon, Missouri. Oh, gosh. 11 years ago? Wow. But as we all know, my memory stinks. So to continue my roller coaster of emotions for the song, then it's this amazing male chorus. And I just love amazing male choruses. It's so powerful. And I wanted to keep hearing it, and then it ended. Yeah. We'll talk about who choreographed this later, but I just am trying to figure out what they're doing physically during this, because (laughs) I feel like they're doing leaps and crazy stuff. Or nothing. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I also, I really like the juxtaposition between this very falsetto-y, effeminate, male voice he's not even that effeminate it's just falsetto (laughs) um but this guy in drag versus these what i'm putting in my head as burly men just because of the way they're sounding they're like where's charlie (laughs) like it sounds very stereotypical testosterone masculinity hubba hubba dudes i love that description (laughs) I don't know how else to describe it I get it Well let's begin The story But we already began (laughs) Let's meet more people Yes So just a quick note about the names This could be a little Elvira Elvira situation Because I know nothing about this show Call back to episode (laughs) 5 So I'm going to try my best to pronounce them If they are said in a song I will say them correctly One would hope The setting is Oxford in the year 1892 And to answer the question of the title Oxonian Charlie Wycombe 
has been down to the railroad station to welcome his aunt, Donna Lucia de Alvadores, a widowed millionaires recently arrived from Brazil. Ooh, fancy. Charlie had hoped that she would serve as a chaperone at a lunch he and roommate Jack Chesney were planning for their fair ladies, Amy Spettigue and Kitty Verdon. But Donna Lucia was not on the expected train. Back in his rooms, Charlie explains the situation to Jack. Both are, of course, dashed in spirit since they fear the girls would refuse to join them without proper supervision. Which turns out to be correct. (laughs) Amy and Kitty, once they are told Auntie has been detained, beat a fluttery retreat. Which is the song, Better Get Out of Here. He wouldn't dream of trying to kiss me or even gently holding my hand. He wouldn't dream of trying to kiss us for after all they're civilized too. But Amy, just to be on the safe side, you better get out of here before they do. Jack, suppose they stay. Wouldn't it be daring and wouldn't it be fun? They just can't stay. Don't be overbearing. It isn't being done. Ooh, I love the syncopation. <laughs> it's very Frank Lesser. Yes. The... It just reminds me of... Not in the tune, but just the way that he uses syncopation. The take back your mink. Boom. Take back your pearls. Yeah. It's interesting that this is his first musical and you... Right off the bat, know that it's him, or I guess. Yeah, he has a very distinct style. Mm-hmm. It's all that harmonica playing. And <laughs> I wonder if he played it really that well. I mean, he won third place, man. That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder if it was for his age group, and it was like you won third place for people of seven years old. <laughs> and there were three people who entered because who plays the harmonica? Well, I don't know. In Manhattan. (laughs) During that year? Who knows? (laughs) But yeah, I like how this show kind of introduces you to the four characters. At this point, I can't tell who is who. I can tell the more legit baritone Mm -hmm. is Jack. Ah. And there's one like mezzo-ish soprano and Mm -hmm. one soprano-y soprano. So that's how I'm telling them apart right now. (laughs) Okay. And then there's... Charlie, who doesn't seem to be much of a singer on this recording. (laughs) Well, let's continue to see if your predictions are correct. Because he is to appear in a forthcoming student theatrical, Charlie goes... How old is he supposed to be? I don't know! I was wondering the same thing, because they're like students and like... I don't know. I just imagine them to be younger, but they have very manly voices. Yeah, and if he's impersonating a full-grown woman, he has to be quite tall. <laughs> I don't know. Unless she's very petite, which could be the case as well. Mm-hmm. But the man who's playing Charlie is well in his 40s. <laughs> I guess they are student age in this, but they can't look it. Uh, from the balcony. Unless they're in a grad school <laughs> theatrical production. Or getting their doctorate. <laughs> they They've been defending their thesis for years. (laughs) 
Because he is to appear in a forthcoming student theatrical, Charlie goes into his bedroom to try on his costume. Jack's widowed father, Sir Francis Chesney, pays his son a surprise visit and reveals an even greater surprise. They have no money. What? <laughs> That's terrible. Jack's practical advice to his father is to marry Charlie's soon-to-arrive aunt. Charlie comes out of the bedroom decked out in a woman's dress and receives news that Donna Lucia won't be dropping in until late in the afternoon. But the girls, expecting the chaperone to be there by now, are on their way up to the boys' rooms. What a predicament! The only solution, Charlie must pass himself off as his own aunt. Amy and Kitty are taken in by the ruse, and, to cover Charlie's sudden disappearance, Jack explains that he is remaining in the bedroom because he is taken ill. Sir Francis enters, ready to woo the heiress, and is introduced to the bogus Donna Lucia. Bogus. <laughs> <laughs> the group is about to have lunch when Stephen Spettigue, Amy's guardian and Kitty's uncle, arrives to take the girls home. Once what? They just got there. Yeah. I mean, they couldn't, like, call on the cell phone. I don't... You know, okay. How did he know to pick them up? He must have said, we're going over to the boys' house today. Mm. And maybe he just was like, well, I'll go now. All right. I don't know how they knew anything back in those times. <laughs> Once he discovers that Donna Lucia is a wealthy widow, however, he decides to join them. So two men are interested. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, from the street below, comes the blaring sound of the new Ashmolean Marching Society and Student Conservatory Band. What in the heck are they talking about? <laughs> What's an Ashmolean? I don't know, that? but it's the name of the next song. <laughs> That's the name of the song? Yes. But also of the group? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> made me laugh and it's the first time the song that uh, during this podcast has made me laugh that i was not because of the lyrics yeah we have no <laughs> idea what they're saying <laughs> i mean they're definitely saying the title yeah. which is what again um the new, new ashmolean marching society and student conservatory band okay <laughs> so there's that but other than that, I have no idea what they're talking Not about. Not a clue. But a few thoughts. Okay. If I were directing this show, I would have the two men who are very interested in Charlie's aunt goosing and chasing her the entire song. <laughs> so Jack and the girls are just having a great time singing about how great the band is and the band is going by. And meanwhile, Charlie's aunt is like, 
Oh, well, Charlie himself is like, oh, my God, what are these men doing? <laughs> and he's, like, trying to get away from them. And then Jack is like, stop it. You're acting weird. And, like, I just imagine a lot of physical comedy happening during yes. this song. Because if you take that out, this sounds like just the most random thing. It sounds like as the parade passes by, but really, why is there a parade passing by? We don't know. It looks like story, story, story. Oh, look, a parade. Yeah. But I wonder if Jerry Herman saw this and was like, you know what? We need a parade <laughs> because <laughs> Hello Dolly didn't come out until 1964, mm-hmm. which is many years after this. So I wonder if he was inspired by a band and he was like, I could do a band as well. <laughs> In a garden following lunch, Jack and Kitty have finally found the chance to be alone together. Mm. Impulsively, they kiss. Mm. And at last can now call each other, my darling, my darling. That's the name of the song, yes. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> what I meant to tell you, what I must tell you, to make absolutely clear to you how poor, how terribly poor. You know very little about me. Don't you realize I'm much too fond of you to let money stand in the way? Oh, Kitty. No, not Kitty. My darling. So Kitty is the mezzo, we have confirmed now, Mm -hmm. and I said that I liked Jack's voice earlier, (laughs) but now I'm not sure if I do or not. It's layered on thick. It is. He thinks he's Robert Goulet. (laughs) (laughs) But the song is really cute. It is. And catchy. Despite it being cute and catchy, though, I think as far as this type of song goes, it's fine. Well, I don't think this is the full-on love song just yet. I mean, we're only a couple songs in. Nothing has happened yet. They're just in love. And potentially the deepest voiced teenagers of all time. She's not that deep, but him. I mean, him. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. He's definitely gone through puberty (laughs) a while ago. Miserable at being hampered from revealing his feelings for Amy, Charlie has rid himself of his Donna Lucia disguise and emerges in blazer and white flannels. He apologizes. So fancy. (laughs) He apologizes to Amy for his absence, but gets nowhere when he tries to talk to his beloved about their future together. Uh Uh-oh. To her, the future means only an age of such miracles as wireless telegraphy, electric lights, fountain pens, and lie detectors, while Charlie vainly pleads, make a miracle and marry me. (laughs) She's like, inventions, and he's like, uh, love? (laughs) (laughs) That's really quick, too. I mean, I don't know their backstory, but... It seems like they've been going out for a while. Mm -hmm. Well, make a miracle is the name of the next song. Wonder of wonders, miracle. 
totally not the right genre. <laughs> no. I know, I know, I know. Someday they'll have horseless carriages that fly. Horseless carriages that fly. Someday they'll be roaring all about the sky. Slogans by a hat-togan. But who knows when that age of miracles will come to be. So meanwhile, darling, make a miracle and Opticans that move. Stereopticans that Stereopticans move. appearing in cathedrals larger than the Louvre. A romantic. Colossal. Gigantic. But who knows? I like that love song a little bit better. Is it a love song? I don't know. <laughs> she seems very distracted. That's true. That's true. He loves her. It seems more of a uh, list of inventions <laughs> and uh, hopes for the future. Yes, that we know have happened, but they don't yet. Although, I don't know all the words that they were saying, so maybe not. Yeah, I don't know some of the things. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure if it's just Britishisms that I don't translate correctly, or if it's inventions that literally don't exist. Mm -hmm. Or it's just old-timey phrases that we just don't know anymore. Yeah, but I do like how he thinks that there's going to be a horseless carriage that flies. (laughs) But it's not a plane. Yeah. But I think that's funny. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, okay. I got you now. Sorry. <laughs> that's the, the slap, if you heard that, was my hand over my forehead. Let's learn more. Spetigue, furious at the way he is being treated by Donna Lucia, comes to take Amy home. But Charlie makes them both stay by assuring the old man that his aunt is in love with him. Alone, Spetigue is practically frothing at the prospect of winning so wealthy a mate. That's disgusting. (laughs) And he practices his romantic technique. I can't wait to see what this is. (laughs) And it's called Serenade with Asides. Ooh, the Asides are what I'm intrigued by. (laughs) Singular, tonight to your silently dash to be close to the warmth of your lips and your arms. And your cool 20 million in cash. <laughs> Lucia. Lucia! Oh, precious one, give me a sign that you're willing, you're willing to make my life thrilling. Precious one, will you be mine? Lucia! my favorite love song so far (laughs) oh my goodness you're right three in a row yeah just (laughs) frank lesser showing us all of the different ways he can write a love song (laughs) i know it's not part of the song itself but charlie's parts are so funny they're really funny (laughs) i really like him yes 
his character. For sure. Well, I like, I guess I like her. I so far I haven't really even met Charlie or learned to like him at all except for one song mm-hmm. where he was just begging a woman to be with him but Charlie's aunt is hilarious <laughs> and this guy's funny too yeah yeah he has some Sped- funny things Spedigue? Spedigue. an attractive middle-aged woman the real Donna Lucia de Alvadores strolls into the garden and asks Sir Francis the way to Charlie Wickham's rooms. He tells her that Charlie and his son are entertaining Charlie's aunt from Brazil. Ah! And he points out the, quote, aunt being chased by Spetague. <laughs> her curiosity piqued by this odd deception, the real Donna Lucia introduces herself as Mrs. Beverly Smythe. As their eyes meet, Donna Lucia and Sir Francis recall that they had once known each other 20 years before when, as Lieutenant Frank Chesney, he was about to be sent to India. They sing Lovelier Than Ever. Ooh, a fourth love song! <laughs> Twas a perfect day in the month of May And the sun was a blazing yellow Remember? And I had my eye on a certain handsome fellow. The lady they call springtime all but swept me off my feet. She filled my heart with promises extravagant and sweet. And now again we meet. She hasn't changed. love song in a row <laughs> surprised me why well firstly by this point i actually forgot that sir francis existed <laughs> you have a very short attention span i know it actually hasn't been very long um i don't know i just didn't imagine the real donna lucia to have like a nice voice is that weird no i didn't expect her to show up yet i thought she was going to show up at the end of act one mm. in the finale of act one. Oh yeah and have everyone be like <gasps> and then end in like a freeze of everyone being shocked and then the curtain goes down i'm not sure if i were to rank these four love songs this would be up there what do you mean up there like is a good one yeah it's a good one ah i see <laughs> i like this song i did get a little confused with the lyrics because they started off recalling a real event and then somehow it transitioned into them personifying spring as a lady. Yeah. And I was like, wait, why is she talking about herself in the third person? Like I thought aunt Lucia was saying like, I was in a green dress, blah, blah. blah. And she was like, but you were in a green dress. And I'm like, well, he wasn't in a, like Sir Francis wasn't in a green dress. So is she talking about herself in third person? And then I realized she was talking about springtime. It's poetry. Maybe I was distracted. <laughs> but I still liked it. For someone who had to write four love songs in a row, 
He certainly made each of them different. Yes. And that's amazing. Yeah. After Donna Lucia and Sir Francis leave, Amy and Kitty confide to the masquerading Charlie that they are in love with Charlie and Jack. Good. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought we already confirmed that. (laughs) But that Spedigue will cut off their money if they marry without his consent. Oh... Alone, Amy reveals her love for Charlie and her jealous fear that his heart belongs to the women in his room. What? Actually, a photograph she has seen on his piano. What? I don't know. It's the name of the song. (laughs) The woman in the room. The woman in his room. I don't know. Let's Uh, listen. Yeah. But when my Charlie's far from me, I'm content as I can be. Just to close my eyes And picture his face And picture his face And picture Picture? That picture, that picture, that picture of that woman That picture of that woman on the piano in his room That picture, that picture, that picture of that woman Wearing tights on a vulgar ostrich plume That woman, that woman, that hussy of a woman. That woman in the picture, that woman in his room. The shock of it. A woman in... Ooh, Amy, she's squeaking. (laughs) She's so mad. She's she's getting squeaky. (laughs) Squeaky. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But he certainly does like his squeaky women. This really reminds me of Adelaide's Lament. Mm Mm-hmm. Just with the squeakiness and how melodramatic it is. <laughs> like, he really thinks highly of women. Um, Donna Lucia just sang something that didn't sound like that at all. That's true. But this girl is a little squeaky. <laughs> <laughs> well, Donna Lucia is a woman. Yeah, and this girl is a girl. Yeah, it says... She it- can't be more than 16. <laughs> She's probably like... 28. <laughs> yes, yes. Fake Donna Lucia and real Donna Lucia meet at tea. Uh-oh. Charlie is asked about his life in Brazil, which is revealed through the song Pernambuco and a ballet sequence depicting the arrival of Donna Lucia and her courtship by the wealthy Senor de Alvadores. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. Charming, but there's nobody farming. 
end of Act One. Oh. Ah, um, that song took me by surprise. That's a good end of Act One song. Everyone's dancing. Yeah. Makes you want to go get a beverage, but apparently you couldn't get those at the theater at this time. <laughs> but it makes you want to get one. <laughs> and I I checked to see who sang this, and it's just it's a random chorus member. Good for you, dude. Yeah, I guess the end act of one, and it gets to be all... He sounds like the boat. <laughs> this song sounds incredibly different than the rest of them, I realize now. It does. Now that we know about Frank Lesser, this seems like probably a melody that he wrote for the radio. Mm. And they were like, hey, we need a character from Brazil, where the nuts are from. <laughs> and we just need it to sound completely different. And he's like, oh, I got it. Because I have a file cabinet of songs that I couldn't sell to anyone. And I'm just going to change the words. <laughs> and it does make you feel you're at some sort of resort. It does feel very tropical. Yeah. Act two. Act two. Walking along the garden path. Charlie, in blazer and flannels, tries to explain his many disappearances to Amy. Yeah, good luck with that. (laughs) After she leaves, the totally smitten lad expresses the unalterable sentiment, once in love with Amy. Ooh, I'm excited and we'll explain why (laughs) later. Oh, once in love with Amy. Then you're always in love with Amy Ever and ever fascinated by her Sets your heart afire to stay Once you're kissed by Amy You can tear up your list It's Amy Fly her with bonbons, poetry and flowers Moon a million hours away You might be quite the fickle-hearted rover So carefree and bold Who loves a girl and later thinks it over Then just quits cold but the best love song of them all. Definitely the best one so far. I just love that song <laughs> so much. This is the one song that I knew from the show before I knew the show existed because every crooner in America has done a cover of this song at one point or another. So I've heard it. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, two things. What do you want to hear first? The history bit or my favorite lyric bit? Let's go history. Okay. So according to MTI, and this is a direct quote from their website, (laughs) this song was originally written six years before Where's Charlie? When Lesser, Peter Lind Hayes, and Hayes' wife, Mary Healy, worked for the Army's radio productions unit. Healy would regularly bring Lesser coffee as he worked at the piano at six every morning. And Lesser was so grateful, he wrote, Once in Love with Mary. Wow. Isn't that so cute? I love that. I just, 
it makes so much sense for this little song because it's such a genuinely sweet song and it's so simple and this is my favorite lyric and it's not necessarily a rhyme but once you're kissed by Amy tear up your list it's Amy I just think that is such a sweet idea I love that because the focus of the song is the girl he doesn't even bother trying to find other words because Amy is the perfect word to rhyme with Amy because there's nothing better than Amy. So why bother trying to figure out anything else? It's just the cutest thing. I love that. And I'm probably not going to bother looking for a better lyric because it's not here. It can't be. Tear up your list. (laughs) (laughs) But I will say as excited as I was to hear this song and as happy as I am to hear the actual song... I was a bit disappointed in Norman Wisdom, who plays Charlie in the London recording. He just doesn't do it for me for some reason. I think he has the added pressure of knowing that the song is a big hit. Because at this point, it's been on the radio, I'm sure. And it was a huge hit on Broadway. So he might be trying too hard to make it his own and kind of losing the essence of the song, in my opinion. So Ray Bolger, who played Charlie in the Broadway production, actually recorded this song also. And for a comparison, we will play that at the end of the show. Because no one can have enough of this song. But for now... Back to the story. (laughs) Later in the afternoon, all the young ladies invited to the formal university ball are in the dressing room preparing for the dance. In the dressing room? Why don't they get dressed at home? And they get their own song. The Gossips. Ooh, (laughs) this could be good or bad. (laughs) But now I'm just thinking of like, bye bye birdie. (laughs) Hi, Amy. Hi, Kitty. What's a story with Charlie? I don't know. How is Jack? song clearly moves forward the plot well i was about to say we're going to play the part that moves forward the plot for them yes but there was about two minutes of them just retelling the plot of the entire show <laughs> to us okay okay like we You're were right. never there You're before right. <laughs> so actually they even sh- quoted songs that we heard <laughs> Yes. They're like, Lucia, Lucia. Like, we heard that song. In in a way, the show could have started right here. And then we could have just gone on from here. But that wouldn't have been any fun. No. And they would have left out a lot of details. But they are gossipy little things, aren't they? Yes, they are. And very legit singing gossips. 
I thought this was going to be more like the character thing that you were uh, anticipating. I thought so too, because in my head, Frank Lesser created Adelaide. Therefore, he created the Hot Box Girls. Therefore, he created a mess of whiny women. But then I remembered he also created Sarah Brown. True. I was thinking, and I know this is a different composer. I was thinking the the pick a little, talk a little, ladies, Music Man. Mm. Yeah, but nope, not at all, <laughs> not even close. No, but I did like how at one point, which I don't think will play for you because this is closer to the beginning. They revealed that the girls were planning on going to the house unchaperoned, and then there was about probably 20 seconds of them just layering and echoing the word unchaperoned on top of each other. It sounded beautiful. It was, but also really, really funny because they were like, unchaperoned, unchaperoned, unchaperoned. It was ridiculous. (laughs) Charlie, again impersonating his aunt, finally says, yes, the Spetikyu's proposal. Why? (laughs) You can't get married. No. But only if he writes a letter giving his consent for Mm. Amy and Kitty to marry Charlie and Jack. Yeah, but the second that he doesn't actually get... Okay, (sighs) you're making this very complicated. Which he does. Which? Oh, Spedigue writes the letter? Yes, Spedigue writes the letter. At the ball, Jack and the assembled dancers join in singing and waltzing to the song At the Red Rose Cotillion. Wait, so it's a cotillion. Yes. So they're 18? (laughs) There we go. That happens when you're 18, right? I believe so. I I don't know when you come of age in the late 1800s. (laughs) Should I look this up? We'll get back to you. Okay. was playing and I was listening intently, I found out a few things about cotillions. Lay it on me. Sure. So, firstly, cotillions were outlawed in the UK in 1958, the year of this recording. Weird. Yes. I would have to do more research as to why, but... Well, because they're a little weird. They are a little strange. They still happen in the United States. But that's purely like DAR stuff. Like, True. tradition. Mm-hmm. No one's actually, I don't know, marrying the person they go to cotillion with. We've all watched Gilmore Girls. <laughs> In the United States, cotillion ranges from age 15 to 18. Mm-hmm. So it's not a specific age, but it is We're going to round up as far up <laughs> as we can go because... This guy is 43, you guys. <laughs> Charlie is 43. I will put the caveat out, though, that I could not find the age for a UK cotillion, but I don't think it was um, that different. In the 40s. <laughs> the age conversion 
for coming out to society might have even been younger, considering they're still allowed to drink way earlier than we are. Yes. And this is also the 1800s that this is taking place in. Yeah. As for the song itself, it's fine. It sounds like you're at a ball. Yeah, I imagine that this is one of those times where it's prettier to look at Mm -hmm. than it is prettier to listen to. Spetikyu announces the engagements of his ward and his niece, and also of himself. (laughs) Wow. What a day. (laughs) Yeah, this is one day. (laughs) Charlie is there in his Donna Lucia outfit. But when Jack accidentally steps on the hem of his skirt and tears it off, ah! he is revealed to be wearing a pair of trousers. Oh, well, thank goodness. Thank <laughs> goodness he wasn't going commando. <laughs> Raging at the deception, Spetigue makes a fuming exit, but everyone else remains to sing a reprise of My Darling, My Darling, slash finale. That's the end? Yes. What? (laughs) Is there more summary after that? Nope. That's it. No way. That's the end of the show. But, well, a few things. Why didn't they just make up some cockamamie lie and say... All the women wear pants underneath their dresses in Brazil. I mean, that would probably work. Yeah. Also, are we not worried that Spedigu is going to find the letter and just rip it up or just say, I was coerced? It's definitely a weird way to start an engagement. <laughs> but don't you think that it, the engagement will be canceled? Yes. the engagement was started by deception. Also, what happened to the real Aunt Lucia and Mr. What's his name? Sir Francis. I don't know. (laughs) Have they even been in Act 2 at all? (laughs) No. (laughs) Maybe they fall in love after their song and they're like, whatever, these people are obviously idiots. And... This guy's already impersonating me, so we'll just leave together and no one will even know I was here. Yeah. Maybe that's it. And they ride off into the sunset together. I know I said that I worked on this play, but I don't remember any of this happening. (laughs) (laughs) I remember the farce of him being in drag and... It was a third person. Yeah, I thought so. There was another person. Yeah. So that they could all be in scenes together. Exactly. This is abrupt. It is very abrupt. My darling, my darling, get used to that name of my darling. It's he.
The finale happened. It did happen, and it sounded like a finale. It did, but it really focused on Charlie and Amy. And I don't exactly know where Jack and Kitty went. Maybe... It's all my darling, my darling. They're all just darling, darling. Maybe I couldn't tell their voices apart. Other Well, I, I think it was just Charlie singing that solo bit. But then when the chorus comes in, maybe it's like montages of them. Of all everyone. Maybe then Charlie's on actually shows back up. Maybe. <laughs> so eh, it could be uh, fixed with staging. I... Don't feel thoroughly satisfied. No. I feel like there's something missing. And I don't think it's something that we didn't read. I think that there was no comedy put into the music. I think you're right. There was no song where he's actively disguising himself. There was no, like, Peter Pan... Oh, my mysterious lady, what is your name? (laughs) There's nothing like that. Yeah, I think all of the drag, or most of the drag, rather, is through book scenes. Which we have the play for. So if you wanted to create a musical about the play, you should put the funny part of the play into music. Well, what can you do? Well, we can't go back in time and fix the finale, but we can make you happy by playing Ray Bolger right now, which will be truly scrumptious. Mm -hmm. I would agree. Okay, bye. I caught you, sir, having a look at her as she went strolling by. Now didn't your heart go boom, 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 boom? Now didn't you sigh? I warn you, sir, never to dream of her. Just bid such thoughts be gone. Or it'll be boom, 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 boom. From then on, for once in love with Amy, always in love with Amy, ever and ever fascinated by her. Oh, I'm so happy. I want everybody to sing with me the next line. Once you're kissed by Amy. Well, once you're kissed. Quite the fickle-hearted rover So carefree and bold Who loves the girl and later thinks it over Then just quits 
And there he was, the true star of the show that we couldn't hear because musicians decided they didn't want to be recorded. (laughs) I wish there was another recording of this. Not that Norman Wisdom did a bad job, but this guy was the original. I also wish they would release the stinking movie. Yes. So this movie was made and um, there has never been a home video release of it. Never. Ever. It's just been sitting in a vault. All alone. It's so sad. We deserve to see it. I did read, though, that the company that owns it, as of 2014, has been saying that they will release it eventually. What do you mean eventually? The movie has (laughs) been made for over 50 years. Give it to me right now. What do you have to do? There's no editing. You can't, like... (laughs) Don't go in and, like, futz with it. Just give it to me the way it was. Yeah. One day. I feel like we'll get to see it. The good thing, though, is that we have this recording of this song, and you can hear this one and the one from the cast album that we have and really compare the two and just imagine what his version of Charlie would be like. And you can also hear Ray Bolger sing Once in Love with Amy on a 45 that Mm -hmm. he put out so you can find that version which is not that different from the version we just played from you from the movie (laughs) so but if you want to own it search for that 45 what's on the other side of it that's a good question i don't know hmm if someone has it let me know So now a little bit more into the history. We already talked about Frank Lesser at the top of the show, but now we're going to delve into George Abbott, who wrote the book for Where's Charlie and directed it on Broadway. George Abbott was born on June 25th, 1887 in Forestville, New York. He attended the University of Rochester, where he wrote his first play called Perfectly Harmless. He continued his education at Harvard University and wrote another play called Head of the Family. In 1913, he started acting on the Broadway stage in The Misleading Lady, followed by a few others. And in 1926, his first Broadway play opened entitled The Fall Guy. He was quite the man about town after his first wife passed in 1930, having numerous marriages and love affairs well into his 90s. He was in a relationship with actress Maureen Stapleton when she was 43 and he was 81, and he left her for a mystery younger woman. Which is hilarious to me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He ended up marrying... Joy Valderrama when he was 96 and she was 52. Robin the Cradle. She's 52. <laughs> I know, that's why it's funny. <laughs> he is most famous for writing The Pajama Game, Damn Yankees, The Boys from Syracuse, New Girl in Town, and many more. When he was the book writer, he also directed the show, but... He also directed works that weren't his, leading him to direct over 40 shows on the Broadway stage, as well as a dozen movies. He won five Tony Awards, two special Tony Awards, and one Pulitzer Prize. 
He got the reputation as a show doctor, being brought in during out-of-town tryouts when a show wasn't hitting the mark. He died January 31st, 1995 at the age 107, <laughs> but not before mentioning at 106 that he was thinking of ways to rewrite the books for Damn Yankees and the Pajama Game. I can't even imagine that. I also wonder if anyone has his notes. <laughs> I would love to hear what his rewrites would be. Oh my goodness. But 107, man. <sighs> I can't imagine. That's crazy. Well. The amount of stuff he got to see. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And he got to get a special Tony Award just for turning 100. <laughs> he did. <laughs> that is one of his special Tony Awards. It was literally for turning 100. I mean, you deserve a freaking prize for getting mm-hmm. that, so. As we mentioned before, producers Cy Fuhrer and Ernest Martin recruited Frank Lesser to write the music and lyrics to George Abbott's already being worked on book of Where's Charlie? Balanchine, the father of the American ballet, was brought on as the choreographer. He co-founded the New York City Ballet the same year the show was on Broadway. He's a very decorated and adored choreographer who created over 450 works. His ballets are still being performed today as they were originally staged. And Mikey has assured me that we can fall down the rabbit hole of his life when we eventually get to On Your Toes, another hidden gem that he has choreographed. We'll get there. Eventually. Maybe sooner than we think. (laughs) Ray Bolger was asked to be a part of this production, and he was intrigued not just because he wanted to do a musical, but also because he had turned down doing the play Charlie's Aunt on Broadway in 1939, possibly because he was still working on The Wizard of Oz, in which he played the Scarecrow across from Judy Garland, which came out the same year. Where's Charlie opened on Broadway, as we said, in 1948 after an out-of-town preview in Philadelphia, and it was well-received overall. It brought in a younger crowd, high school age or below, and they all rushed to the stage door for signatures after the show. Probably because of Ray Bulger. He had a lot of fun with his role, leading a sing-along with the audience every show for several minutes where the house lights would be brought up and everyone would sing Once in Love with Amy together. It was inspired by an impromptu sing-along that occurred at a matinee when a child started to sing with Bolger because the song was a radio hit and everyone loved it. I think that's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> like, instead of pulling a Patti Lapone and being like, Shut up! He was like... Yes, let's all sing. Oh, how nice. The show closed initially because Ray Bolger's doctors advised him to rest. Just because he was overtired. Nothing was specifically wrong with him. But he was determined to come back to Broadway for a limited engagement. So they revved up for the Broadway return with a limited run in Boston. It took nine years for Where's Charlie to open on the West End. We're unclear why it took so long, but in 1951, Frank Lesser met Norman Wisdom, a British singing comedian in New York, and thought he would be a good fit for Charlie. 
The British idolized the play Charlie's Aunt and thought it was a classic comedy, so they were wary to see a remake of the show they viewed as perfection already. From the newspaper The Tatler, quote, One would have supposed that Charlie's Aunt had everything to lose by being turned into a musical, but one would have been entirely wrong. Oklahoma, which came to London in 1947, was the yardstick by which theatergoers measured, and Where's Charlie was frequently compared to it in a positive light. A writer for the Times had seen both productions and said, quote, In fact, I prefer Mr. Wisdom to Ray Bulger, who made a great success of the piece on the other side of the Atlantic. Mr. Bulger was a brilliant dancer, but he had not Mr. Wisdom's simplicity. Now on to a little bit more about the star actors in Where's Charlie? We're going to start with Ray Bulger. Born on January 10th, 1904 in Dorchester, Massachusetts. He started off his career as a vaudeville tap dancer, and he shared his time between the Broadway stage and sound stages in L.A. Broadway credits included Life Begins at 840, On Your Toes by Jupiter, All-American, and this show, Where's Charlie?, for which he won the Tony Award for Best Performance by a Leading Actor in a Musical, as well as a Donaldson Award for Best Male Dancer. The Donaldson Awards were a theater award started in 1944 in honor of the founder of Billboard, as in Billboard magazine, Billboard charts, all that <laughs> stuff. Winners were given a gold key and a scroll. They were apparently very obsessed with scrolls back in the day. <laughs> But the awards were overshadowed by the Tonys, and the last ceremony was in 1955. Ray Bulger was also very well known in film, so he was in the movie version of Where's Charlie in 1952. He starred in the TV show Where's Raymond, and had bit roles in many other shows, including Shirley Jones' father in The Partridge Family. <laughs> but he is always remembered, at least by me, as the Dr. Pepper guy in <laughs> in the classic musical commercials. You know, the ones that go, I'm a pepper, you're a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper. Don't you want to be a pepper too? <laughs> Which, prior to meeting Jen, I've never heard. But if you don't know it, look it up. It's, it's catchy. <laughs> I'll put it on the Instagram. But of course, Ray Bulger's biggest role that can be seen on film and replays on TV to this day was the Scarecrow in Wizard of Oz. He was asked often if he received any residuals from telecasts, and his response was always the same, quote, No, just immortality. I'll settle for that. So cute. He died January 15th, 1987 in Los Angeles, California. Now, on the other side of the pond, Sir Norman Joseph Wisdom played Charlie. He was born on February 4th, 1915 in London, England. His father was a chauffeur and his mother was a dressmaker for the West End and she once made a dress for Queen Mary. His family was quite poor and they all slept in one room. His father was abusive, so Norman left home at age 13 and allegedly walked to Cardiff, Wales to work on the docks and later joined the military many times in various roles. 
It was in the army that he learned drums, trumpet, and clarinet, as well as becoming a boxing champion, and it was through shadow boxing that he learned of his skill as a physical comedian. After the war, he took odd jobs as a telephone operator and cab driver, but at age 31, he started his career as an entertainer, becoming a straight man to the magician David Nixon. It was during this time on the road he developed his signature character known as Gump, a disheveled blue-collared man with an ill-fitting suit and an innocent awkwardness towards women. This character, often named Norman Pitkin, can be seen in many movies between 1953 and 1966. He has won a BAFTA award for most promising newcomer to leading film roles in 1953 for his first lead role in the film Trouble in Store. Charlie Chaplin once referred to Wisdom as, quote, his favorite clown. He was nominated for a Tony Award for Walking Happy in 1966. Norman Wisdom turned down the role of Frank Spencer in Some Mothers Do Avum because he didn't find it funny. But that allowed Michael Crawford to achieve stardom before playing a different Charlie in Flowers for Algernon, which you can hear about in episode three. <laughs> I love all these crossovers. I mean, the theater world is very small. <laughs> Wisdom was knighted in the year 2000. He died on October 4th, 2010 on the Isle of Man. It's time for audition cuts. Yay. I'm going to go first this time, and I picked The Woman in His Room. I'm surprised you picked that song. Oh, I didn't really have many choices. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do think this song is really funny. Yes. And I think I picked a cut that you can act out well. It was hard to find a short enough cut. The song wants the cut to be a minute. That would be a perfect arc. So if you have time to do a whole minute of the song, I would suggest that. I think that's where it naturally sits. I think this song could fit someone who can do classical ballads, but also can be a character actor because they can switch in the middle of this song. And I think it would be really funny if they did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So take a listen. Charlie's a nice boy, a dear boy, a sweet boy, a fine boy, a good boy through and through. I shall be patient, be waiting when Charlie returns from that urgent rendezvous. Rendezvous. That's a French word. I've seen it in a novel. Meaning that woman, that woman. I know he's with that woman. I'm sure he's with that woman on the piano in his room. That woman, that woman, that monster of a woman's cast a spell over my intended groom. Funny, no? I think so. <laughs> this could be used for so many characters. Basically, any ingenue with a little bit of sass like any classic ingenue with a little bit of sass so i would definitely obviously say adelaide from guys and dolls 
I would say Cinderella, but also maybe if you're like, ah, I could be Cinderella, but also I wouldn't be mad if I was one of the stepsisters. This could be a great song to audition with. So you can audition for both of them and have the director kind of piece you into where you fit in the puzzle. Yes, I love those songs. Yeah, where you're like, well, I don't know what you want me to do. So here's me singing pretty and here's me being crazy. (laughs) So what do you want? And also uh, Carrie Pipridge from Carousel, I think. Yes. This would be a good song for her. She's a little sass to her. She is. Awesome. Thank you. So for my choice, I didn't go with the obvious. Once in love with Amy. Mainly you guys have heard it twice already. So it would be silly <laughs> to play it again. Although, let's be honest. Of course you can use that song. But let's pick another song. Yeah. <laughs> the song I chose was My Darling, My Darling. Yay. I chose this song despite my iffiness with the man's voice in the recording. Because you won't be hearing the man who's singing it in the recording when someone else is singing it Yes. for an audition. <laughs> so imagine you singing this. My darling, my darling, I've wanted to call you my darling for many and many a day. My darling, my darling, so when i said imagine yourself singing this song maybe imagine yourself if you were a bass baritone (laughs) (laughs) so i will imagine myself singing this song so the roles that you should probably use the song to audition for Emil in South Pacific, um, King Arthur in Camelot, maybe Cervantes in Man of La Mancha, mm. those beefy roles. And I just realized... Who you I, call him beefy? <laughs> I realized that I've, I've listed three roles that Robert Goulet has played. So basically look <laughs> at his resume. Robert and... Goulet, Robert Goulet. My God, Robert Goulet. <laughs> And if he if he played the role, this song might be good to audition for it. But maybe they shouldn't audition for another show. Maybe they should host auditions for this show. But we have to answer a quick question. Should this show still be produced? One, two, three. Yes. yes. Even more so than Redhead, in my opinion. <laughs> You should definitely still do this show. I mean, British farces are funny. Musicals are great. Put them together. You got this show. Yeah. And who doesn't love a man playing an old lady in drag? I mean, (laughs) it worked for Robin Williams, and it's working, well, hopefully, for Rob McClure. Maybe. We're not sure. But also, fun fact, Rob McClure played the role of Charlie... In this show, in what year? 2011. So, he's been in drag before. Yes. (laughs) 
Also, that's an indication that this show is still being produced, like, as of nine years ago. Yeah. And it has lasting power. So that's a great indication. Also, if you're worried about marketing this show for any reason, it has a very popular song in it. Mm-hmm. And you could use that itself to market it. This show's great. Yeah, this could be on, you know, your local morning television. You send out the lead, you put him up, tell him, you're going to sing Once in Love with Amy at 7 o'clock in the morning on the morning news, <laughs> and he'll be really grumpy at you, but it will get butts in seats, so he won't be that grumpy, and people will love it. Yes. So this show's a no-brainer. Just do it. And if you want to do it, you have to contact MTI. Duh, because Frank Lesser created it. (laughs) Uh, Again, this is one of the ones that has a little funny calculator. So we're doing this off of a 100-seat house selling tickets for $25 flat with 16 performances over the course of three weeks. It will be the range of... $6,500 to $8,800, which is not a bad price. Not at all. So go out there, produce this show, get a drag queen to do it. That'd be fun. (sighs) That's such a great idea. There are so many drag queens that also are comedians, that also are singers. There are so many actors that also do drag. Yes, and they can't all be Lola. That's only one type of drag queen. And they can't all be Harvey Firestein. That's another. <laughs> this this adds to the drag queen repertoire. Yes. You could have a whole season of drag queens. Oh my goodness. There we go. Another reason to do this show. You have to do a theme. A theme? <laughs> a themed season of oh, drag geez. queens. One drag queen per show. And then you should throw Oh, in. I thought you were going to say one drag queen to rule them all. <laughs> no. I was like, that is a lot for one person. But then you should do a show that doesn't usually have a drag queen and just put one in there anyway. Oh, God. Now you have me going off on a whole different tangent. Anyway, <laughs> that is all for today. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for listening. Yes, thank you so, so much. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. But only if it's nice. If you want to email us any suggestions, you can do that at buriedbroadway at gmail.com. Please follow us on Instagram at buriedbroadway or search for our page on Facebook. We really appreciate all the support so far. Yes, Thank you. Please help spread the word and tell your friends and family and anyone who you think might be interested in this little show how to find us. We'd really, really appreciate it. Word of mouth is the best thing for a podcast. So just chat us up. What What will will we dig dig up next? (laughs) Bye. Toodles. I know we just played you some songs from the show. But that doesn't mean we have the rights, you know. We're educating you and ourselves, you see. With musicals lost in history. So please don't call your lawyers. That would kill the vibe. We just want to make podcasts. And keep Buried Broadway alive.
Stevie, just lovely. 